0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Investor Frame podcast. I'm your host, Paul Sparks. And on this show, we ask successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs to share their stories so we can all learn from their experiences and get closer to the things that we want in life. Today, I'm here with a friend of mine, Jay Chikansky. Jay is a former engineer, uh, just like me, that got started in real estate in 2015. He's completed hundreds of deals, uh, fix and flips vacant land, uh, seller finance, wholesaling, all sorts of stuff. Uh, he he does a lot in the seller finance space, which we're going to de- dig in a little deeper with today. Um, he does stuff in self-storage, mobile home parks, very well-versed uh, investor. So I'm ex- excited to have him share a little bit about what he's doing in that space, why he decided to transition more into seller finance, notes, things like this. Uh, Jay, welcome in. It's great to have you.
1: Yeah, thanks, Paul. Good to talk
0: to you. So we start off every show with a six-word update. So what is your six-word update
1: today? Six-word update is five words today, but it is your frequency creates your reality. And that plays along the lines of, you know, the Henry Ford stuff, uh, whether you think you can, you think you can't, uh, you know, the secret manifestation, things like that. And to me, what that really represents is, just in, in my 41 years of doing this, there's two things in this world that you can control, your attitude and your effort.
0: mm how, I I'm really curious to dive right in, but your frequency creates <laughs> your reality. What frequency are you putting out right now?
1: Well, the frequency of who I want to become in the next 12 months. Right? Mm. So that is, you know, we talked a little bit before we hit record, uh, I've got a baby boy on the way, uh, getting married very soon. And uh, obviously want to be a, a, a great father and serve as a, a good example for him and raise him right. Uh, a great husband. And uh, a great businessman. And do it all at the same time and make it look very easy doing it. Mm.
0: Yeah, you know, we have a phrase that we like to talk about. It's like, play your game. And I find that, like, I was creating a reality that I didn't want when I got first got into real estate. You know, I started watching other people and seeing how they were making money. And I, you know... Didn't really think, is this in line with the frequency that I want to put out? I just put it out as like, is this the reality that I want? Which is, I want to make money, right? I wanted to make money. So I saw other people and saw the reality of what they had and assumed that that was the frequency that I wanted to align with when I got a little further down the road, I started realizing like, there's a dissonance here. Like I'm, yeah, maybe we're making money and we're dealing, you know, we're, we're doing deals and things like this, but like, is this resonating with the frequency that I actually want to be at? You know, we were talking about that before the show started. And I just like sum that up as, are you playing your game? Because if you're not playing your game, you're likely at the wrong frequency. And then you end up creating a reality that maybe you end up, um, resenting a little bit uh, if i go go so far to say what's your thoughts on that
1: yeah absolutely i mean uh, i I actually just experienced it in the last year and a half or so of the business where you know in uh, up up to covid my main focus was uh, buying houses with private money and wrapping a seller financed second around that and then covid hit and you could kind of you can throw a cold turd on the MLS and you're catching a bid for it, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so I had I had shifted to trying to flip houses, trying to wholesale deals. I didn't like any of it. I don't like the process. I don't like the wholesale deals. I don't like to flip deals. Um, every time I flipped a house, I I would need two to three months to recover from the brain damage associated with with managing a house flip and the level of the level of conversations that you have and fighting to get work done properly and so on and so forth and i got to the end of the third quarter last year i was burned out i was spiteful i was angry uh, just, and wasn't a pleasant person and it, it ties into exactly what you were saying right there was i was just operating at this frequency of, of playing a game that wasn't mine i didn't enjoy it anymore
0: mm. Mm. well and it's like we have it inverted we're trying to create the reality, What we really need to do is
1: create the right frequency. Yeah, 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 and, and that ties back into you know what, what we discussed there right off the bat was you know that that whole visualization, manifestation, living with intention type of thing. And,
0: but, but Jay, that's all woo-woo stuff. No, that doesn't actually work.
1: <laughs> it, it does work, and and when it doesn't work, that's when you find yourself off in the weeds, and you'll and you know you catch yourself. Uh, in life, angry, you know waking up, angry at everything, and you know. yeah, when well, you, man, hit the, you hit the reset button, hit the reset button and uh, and reevaluate what you're doing,
0: yeah, that's the other thing too is like you have to constantly evaluate uh, not necessarily the outcomes, but well, how does this make me feel like is, is this something I'm enjoying or am I just like smiling and saying, yeah, we're having fun, right? Um, A lot of us get trapped in our own biases, right? We want to we wanna keep up with the next person who's doing more and more deals or we want to, um, yeah, compare ourselves to others. We get caught up in like we had a great month and now we're going to like, triple R marketing. We're going to do all these different things. And it's like, wait, three months ago, you were sitting here saying that you didn't even like this business. And now you're scaling it because you had some good month because like, we're just humans at the end of the day. We're all susceptible to emotional decision-making. So it's, you know, I found it really important to ask yourself constantly and you called it frequency. I like that. I could just call it, am I playing my game? Am I aligned with, who I really am. And does this, feel, do I even want to be doing this?
1: Yeah. You said something really interesting there um, about, you know, chasing these things that you, you may not want. And with social media now, what you end up doing is you are contrasting someone else's highlight reel to all of your insecurities. And then if you start, if you're not um, cognizant of that, then you start chasing that stuff. And you end up down some rabbit hole or out in the weeds and, running some business that does not serve me.
0: Right. Well, tell us about your background. And, you know, I sort of glossed over what's been almost a decade of, you know, you being an incredible investor, but tell us a little bit about how you got into real estate and what your business looks like now.
1: Yeah. So I took the uh, the, the usual path to get into real estate. I walked into my engineering manager's office on a Friday afternoon and said, dude, we're done here. I'm good. <laughs> That's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just uh just burned out, fed up with that whole cubicle lifestyle. You know, I looked up the corporate ladder and knew I didn't want to grow up to be any of those people. So, I you know, left engineering in early 2015. Uh, I had uh, you know, as a, as a way to cope and medicate myself after work every day, I was flipping my own houses. I was doing all my own work on Thanksgiving. So, uh took about a, a month and a half off. I listened to Rich Dad Poor Dad and it clicked. It clicked. It made me, it finally made me think and feel okay with all these thoughts I've been having all along that this whole work till I'm 65 to get a pension or a 401k just wasn't for me. Found a, I mean, found a house from a wholesaler two months later, bought it, flipped it, made some money on it and kept going. Right. And fix and flip was what I knew at the time. And then, uh, a real a real pivotal and turning point in my career i had invited uh one of my private lenders to walk through a house flip that i had under contract to see if he was interested in lending the, the funds for the acquisition and rehab on them and uh we get done looking at the house and he goes i'll lend you the money but once you why don't you join me tomorrow we'll drive around i'll show you what i've been doing for the last 25 years and uh we're driving by these houses, and he was talk, talking about the seller finance as an exit strategy model. and it just clicked. So,
0: what does your business look like today? Because I know that you don't do fix and flips and a lot of that anymore. So what do you do now?
1: Yeah. so um, the good news is is when when the market shifted towards the latter half of last year, that whole idea of throwing whatever on the MLS and getting a bit over ass disappeared. And uh, I, I, know that it, I know that it caused a lot of trouble for a lot of people, but uh, deep down inside, I knew that the seller finance business model was coming back to me. So right now I'm, um, I'm flipping some vacant land parcels and I'm also doing it, but the bread and butter is seller financing houses. And what I'm doing there is, we find a, a, either an on-market or an off-market house, can be any st- in in any state needing a, a complete rehab, or you know the the tenants just moved out. I'm able to acquire it uh, using funds from my private lenders, purchase the house, make any needed repairs to either bring it to what would be a full retail or or dressing it up to make it a good quality rental. And rather than reselling it on the MLS, we are selling it off market to owner occupants with seller financing, which means. They either Some folks have poor credit. Some folks don't have two years of tax returns because they're self-employed. Some folks come from places out of the country where they don't trust banks. And the truth is, that's not so far-fetched when you look at the shady stuff that Wells Fargo and B of A do. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a very big buyer's pool. Uh, 65% of the people in this country do not qualify for a Fannie or a Freddie loan. So so you're, you're reading
0: my notes here, Jay. That was what I was going to ask you. It's like, <laughs> I must've heard that from you, 65%. And I was like, wait, what? You're telling me that 65% of Americans just can't qualify for a mortgage.
1: For one reason, reason or another, like right? credit score, debt to income, tax returns, so on and so forth, right? And I, and I look at that number and I'm like, why, why am I going to fool around with chasing after the 35% of the people that do? deal with realtors, deal with home inspectors, deal with underwriting, you know, all that stuff. When I can go in this other route, charge a premium for what I'm doing. And here's the best part, Paul, on every one of these deals, I'm getting paid at least four times.
0: Hmm. I'm going to come back to that because I want to kind of dig into that a little bit more in the barbell discussion. What I love about that is we're just big fans of creating um, optionality, right? Like. You have four different points in in your one deal that you can monetize this. And, you know, most of us have one, maybe two. That's why I think that is such a powerful strategy because you've just created so much optionality off of it. Um, But I want to pull back a little bit on the specifics, strategies and things. We'll save that for just a second. I want to know more about why, like why real estate investing? Why doing these things? What is your solvable problem? What are you driving towards um, in your life and your business that you're trying to engineer?
1: Yeah. Ooh, there's a couple of layers there. Um, you know, one of the initial whys was you know, sitting in that engineering office every day, thinking to myself, I'm capable of so much more. And that, that still drives me. Even even with what I've accomplished over the last eight years, like I just I'm not done. I'm I'm just such a driven individual that I'm scratching my itch every day. You know, we mentioned uh, a little earlier. Uh, got a wife and a family, or a wife and a little boy on the way. And I want to serve as an example for what is possible and what my son can create. You know, and then there's. There's something from a, uh, you know, like a nationwide or even a global uh, standpoint, right? We We live in a times where the media conditions everyone to be a victim of something. And society just blindly accepts it, right? No matter how bad it is in America right now, this place still creates 1,800 millionaires every day. So why don't I serve as an example of what is possible when you set your mind to something and you design a life and a lifestyle with intention?
0: Yeah, you know, what what I'm curious to hear you kind of expand upon is how do you marry making an impact in your family, the personal drive, you know, being, being the example that it's possible to do all these things. How do you connect that with financial obligations in your own life? And how do you think about managing both of those too? Because real estate has this, uh, we have a phrase that we say, we want to get closer without chasing more. And how can you get closer to something unless you've defined what that actually is, like where you're going? I found that I was victim to this. I'm fighting it significantly in my own business, where like there's so many shiny objects. There's so many ways to make money. And it's it's like all the flipper, all the wholesalers want to be flippers, all the flippers want to be multifamily, all the multifamily want to be in large multifamily, all the large multifamily want to be industrial. There's like levels and layers to this, and it's always the next level to get to. So how do you how do you think about um the dichotomy between wanting to make a massive impact and not just chasing more and more and more inside of real estate in pursuit of money alone?
1: Good question. Um, to be honest with you, money's just, it's a way to keep score. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the biggest driver I have is is freedom, right? Whether that's time freedom, financial freedom, location freedom. But then that's been one of the bigger drivers and that's what i want for my family to keep all of those things in balance right with with my drives my desires and then what i want for my family I do some practice in the morning you know it's just a simple check-in in a journal right i look at a couple of different areas of my life from a from a personal standpoint relationship standpoint a spiritual standpoint and then the business standpoint and then on top of that I'm, I'm so fortunate to have an amazing spouse in, in Mimi, and being able to, you know sit down, slow down, connect with her, be honest with her, um, share feedback back and forth, talk about what's important, what's a priority, and, and, and have her share the same thing with me. And maybe her feedback, adjust my priorities a little bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've just found that like every time we make a decision, You know, you're like eliminating all the other things you could have been doing, right? Um, So you say yes to a deal. It means you can't say yes to theoretical infinite number of other deals that could have come the next day or two days. You know, uh, you make a decision to be on this podcast with me right now. And that's time that you could be spending with an infinite number of other things. And, you know, so that's why this solvable problem, this concept is so powerful. Because if we don't know what is most important, and it sounds like making an impact is the most important on your family, on your community, um, it's like, well, we have to measure our decisions relative to that, not necessarily, could I make more money doing this? Um, Because like, well, for are we optimizing for money, or are we optimizing for impact and influence right now? Because those two things are inevitably at some point going to be in opposition, and we got to have clarity on what we're actually doing. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves getting further away from what we actually wanted.
1: Well, I don't think it has to be an either-or decision, right? right? There's there's different there's there's seasons throughout the year. There's seasons of life. There's going to be times where, um, you know, finances are a priority over other things there's, Hey, I'm, I'm coming forward to a a season of my life where family is going to be a priority for a couple of months. Right. With a newborn. Yeah. Uh, You know, it it doesn't have to be this, this binary one and zero. Uh, There's a spectrum to it. Yeah. Well, and
0: that's, that's the title of this show. We call it the investor frame because we reserve the right to change our mind. And it's, it's made, it's so obvious when you look at this as like what you wanted three years ago, I'm sure it's very different than what you want today with a pregnant fiance. It's probably going to be very different than what you want three years from now. So when we build this rigid binary, you know, black or white, this is what I'm doing. You get tunnel vision, which is why you've got to check in with your frequency constantly, like because things are changing. And yeah, knowing what I know now, before I was optimizing for impact, But now that I've been presented with this new data and this new information, because we're out in the world engaging and things come back. And now it's like, right, well, knowing what I know now, we need to like shift what we're optimizing for.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it comes down to uh, perspective and awareness, uh, checking in with yourself, uh, being present. Uh, So many of us at so many times, you know, go through life unconsciously.
0: Yeah. Well, and you mentioned journaling. I've gotten, uh, I've been a a big fan of journaling for the last like four years. Um, It's just been something I do frequently. But I get a lot of people who ask, they're like, what do you journal about? What are you writing? Um, I don't think of it necessarily as like a letter to myself that I write every morning. I'm curious because it sounds like you journal a lot too. And you're checking in with your frequency. You're checking in on your decisions. Does it still make sense? Tell me a little bit about how you journal.
1: Yeah, it's just a, a, the easiest answer is I freestyle it every morning, right? Just whatever whatever comes uh, from my mind through my left hand, through a pen, goes out on paper. And it's just a process of flushing thoughts out. Um, let's do that like a simple, simple thing. Write out 9, 10, 12 thoughts that come to mind. And then reread them and look at them, right? And if you're honest with yourself, there's going to be some good thoughts. There's going to be some bad thoughts. Then you'll be able to pick out some limiting Mm -hmm. beliefs from there. Mm -hmm. And then once it's out on paper in front of you, you've brought awareness to it. And you can dive a little deeper. But for me, it's just a free flow of whatever's top of mind in the moment. Mm -hmm. Something special about releasing releasing some of that stuff. Yeah,
0: non-restrictive that can oftentimes like too much freedom too soon can overwhelm someone who doesn't journal at all. Right. So it's like when you're trying to get into journaling, what I'm a big fan of, of course, like this free flow, like letting your thoughts kind of come out. It's like, it's also why some people have trouble with meditating because it's hard to, it's hard to slow down. It's hard to just let your thoughts kind of flow through your hand to the paper. Um, So, you know, some of the prompts I like to, you know, give people when they're starting is like, what are you trying to solve for? What do you want? What is the frequency you want to create? Um, do an audit. Like, sometimes it's sometimes it's a letter. Sometimes it's like I'm making lists. Sometimes it's like, I'm making diagrams. Sometimes it's like, I did this yesterday, and I really want to remind future Paul, don't do that again. That was a really b- dumb thing, right? Um, but yeah, I, I just couldn't I couldn't agree more. It's the process we like to say, Engage, reflect, re-engage. Like you've got to go out and do some stuff. You got to press the buttons. You got to poke around. Because that's how we we get information. Then we got to reflect on that information. And then based on what we reflected, now we go re-engage. But that process has got to be at, at, at minimum, I would say, weekly. You're better off if you can do it daily. I find that if you try to journal weekly, you'll lose the habit. It's just got to become part of your daily, daily
1: actions. Daily actions, there's no right or wrong. No one's ever going to read it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just start. You know, and if you need some structure, you can take what you said. I think I said earlier, you know, I I just check in with myself from the standpoint of me personally, me spiritually, me showing up in my relationship, and then me showing up in my business. Yeah.
0: Well, um, let's talk about seller finance. Let's talk about your barbell. Because, you know. We love. I, I just love that framework. It's just for me. It's so visual. I can see. Um, I can see it all laid out. But tell me how you think of your barbell. Tell me a little bit about your strategies.
1: Yeah. So, in terms of speaking, from, uh, you know, from the standpoint of the barbell, you know, the stability side for me, that's got that, that, that's cash flow. Um, that is promissory notes. That is rental properties. On the more aggressive side, that is where. I'm starting to acquire some smaller commercial assets, self-storage facilities, mobile home parks, things that they don't make a ton of money. Like you're not going to retire on 20,000 square feet of self-storage. But when you, you know, raise rent $15 a unit times a hundred something units, that's a six and second. You know, the needle moves six figures. So the seller finance strategy, that that actually uh, fits into both sides of the barbell. The, uh, the reason I say that is it's creating cash. It's creating cash flow, and then I'm holding on to a paper asset that has value that could be, uh, you know, converted into cash, or held in the portfolio for a long time. Mm. So,
0: what you're doing is the same thing that other wholesalers are doing. Meaning, they find this property off market. But you're bringing in your private lenders. You're taking these deals down in cash. Correct. You're doing whatever needs to be done to it to get it up to you know rentable or livable or even retail in some cases. Okay. And then you're going out and you're finding someone that can't qualify for a traditional mortgage. of Americans apparently can't qualify for a traditional mortgage. That's probably close to 200 million people here in the US. Um, And you're selling it to them on seller finance. Most people think of seller finance as an acquisition strategy. You're using it as as an exit strategy or a disposition strategy. Could you expand on that a little bit and fill in any gaps I missed there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll just I'll just walk through the process from start to finish and do my best to explain it in a very digestible manner. Just so like you said, doing my own marketing work, all right, direct-to-seller marketing. We're still speaking to to homeowners, sellers. We're buying properties off the you know, on the MLS as well. Purchase these, these properties in cash. So my private lenders, it's just these are folks that I've been working with for five, six, eight years now that uh, are very familiar with with my business and my business practices and what I do. Oh. They are the ones that put up the funds to acquire the properties. Those funds are secured in first position with a deed of trust or a mortgage, depending on the state, right? And they're, they're, their money is protected in the same way that a bank is. Mm-hmm. We go into these properties with a, a, with a pretty good idea of what we're going to be selling them for. And when these with these houses, after we're done fixing them up, my lenders are usually in a position of a loan to value between forty-five and sixty-five percent. Nice, very yeah, se- secure, right? These are folks they they want their money working for them. The small, you know, the lowest amount of time three years, longest time fifteen years, fully amortized, right? It just depends on where they're at in their season of life and how long they want their money working for them. And they get paid an interest payment every month. Every year, or every month. How do you pay that? Yeah, yeah pay them every month. Gotcha. Right, because of, because what I'm doing here is I'm helping to fund some folks' retirements. Yeah, I'm helping to grow folks' self-directed IRAs. I'm helping to fund family vacations because I've got a couple of lenders that they work full-time jobs, fifty yeah. hours a week. They this don't. Is have their solvable problem. It's their solvable problem. They don't have time to be you know, vetting every fix and flip deal, right? I've done 15, 20, 30 deals with some of these folks and they just want they want their money to continue to be working for them. Yeah. So on the dispo side, right? These houses are fixed up anywhere from rental ready to I mean, completely re, uh, retail ready. And we, uh, you know, we market through some different uh, different avenues, right? Our, our buyers, they're not usually... Looking on the MLS, uh, these are folks that are on, um, you know, they scour Zillow. Uh, they're on Facebook Marketplace. So we market there. We do all of our own, you know, our dispo work in-house. And we're selling these houses. You now, I'll, I'll use, uh, I mean, th- this was a home run deal, but I'll use some numbers here on one that we just did back in April. Bought it for 40. This is upstate South Carolina. Bought it for 40. Put nearly 40 into it. All right. My lender put up 100% of the funds for both. so they're they're into it for eighty thousand dollars, secured in first position. We sold this property with seller financing. Purchase price was two hundred fifty thousand. We got a thirty thousand dollar down payment, and <clears throat> we've got a you know a promissory note for two hundred twenty thousand dollars. So that's going to cash flow to me, you know, over twelve hundred dollars a month between what my payment in to what my payment out Mm-hmm. Now, somewhere down the road in the next three to five years, I'm going to have to sell off a portion of that promissory note to another investor to pay back my private lending. Yeah, if they don't, if they don't want to renew, it. there's a there's a cool like you know there's an entire industry of note buyers. Yeah, these are folks looking for yield, looking for income. So disposing a, a a note properly seasoned for two, three, four, five years is not really an issue.
0: I found that. I didn't even know about that whole world. And then I met a couple of note buyers and I'm like, whoa, that makes total sense. You're just, you know, you're just arbitraging interest rates, basically. Yeah. Yep, so exactly. you may, you mentioned that you make money four times on these deals. So tell me about
1: that. Sure. So first time is at the purchase closing, right? I had t- mentioned to you that, you know, my lenders are usually in a spot with let's say 50% loan to value. So if I borrowed an extra $2,000, $2,500 at closing, that sound okay to you, Paul? I'd say so. Let's say so, right? I take that money and I roll it right back into marketing. You, you've been marketing yourself, right? We're talking about having to spend six, eight, 10, 12, $20,000 a month at times mm-hmm. for marketing. So we roll that money right back into marketing. Second time we get paid is when we sell the house, we collect the down payment. That flows to us. Third time we get paid is every month, right? Arbit, you know, arbitrage of the spread between what comes in and what goes out. So there's monthly cash flow. And then you get paid a fourth time when it comes time to sell that promissory note to another investor, because there's usually a pretty big difference between the, uh, the unpaid balance of the note and what you're selling it for and the balance to pay off the private lender first position and then once that private lenders paid off that note buyer is now uh, you know taking that note in first position.
0: Mm. So let me make make sure i recap that just so i understand this. You're buying it you're let's say you're offering 40 grand but you're selling it to your own entity at 44 or 42 or whatever. Is that right?
1: No. No. Nope. You're just
0: overfunding. No. You're just overfunding it. Overfunding yeah. got, that got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So you're overfunding it. You're taking that two grand extra. um, What you're sort of telling your private money lender is like, Hey, I got to feed the beast. Like you want more of these deals. We got to get, we got to get the marketing out. This, this, this ain't free. Um, So they overfund that. They allow you to find more deals. Of course, then you're taking that you're rehabbing it and you're selling it to someone who can't qualify. And a lot of cases you're getting a down payment that almost functions as like a burr, right? Like you're not burring out completely, but you're burring out a large chunk of your initial private lender. So in that case, are you putting that $30,000 that you're getting in a down payment? Are you,
1: what are you doing with that? Typically not going back to the private lender just because they're, they're in a position of 50%, 50% loan to value, right? Yep. Um, that, that money comes back. To the business. And gotcha. the reason for that is 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 I'm able to I'm able to perform a whole lot better when me and my family are fed every day. Oh man,
0: you gotta have a profitable business. I've learned that the hard way, right? Yeah. Um, we can't continue to help people unless we make making money. So it makes total sense. You get that down payment that goes into your pocket, A uh, great deal even right there. Stop right there. But you're going even further and you're collecting cash flow now by paying your private lender out at, let's say, 8% or whatever you're getting, and then you're selling it on a finance deal to somebody else at, where are you typically
1: seeing these interest rates fall? It, it, it's, a, it's a knob we can turn, but it's usually between 8 and 10%. Gotcha. Yep. 8%, 10%. These folks, there's no prepayment penalty, so if they ever wanted to, you know, if, if they get their... So whatever reason they're in the, the buyer penalty box, right, mm-hmm. if they get their credit score in order or their debt to income down, they can go refinance this property, you know, at a, at a 5 or 6% 30-year fixed rate with Wells Fargo or B of A or whoever, right? There's no issues with that. And uh, it's great because it, it keeps my private lender's money working for them. Mm-hmm. It's a great business model for me because of the, you know, the cash, the cash flow and the asset creation. And then if you think about it from, you know, just a neighborhood perspective, would you rather have a neighborhood full of renters or would you have a neighborhood full of owners? Owners, clearly. Owners, right? So, so there's, we've, we've created an ownership opportunity, pride of ownership. Uh, you've turned what was an eyesore in the neighborhood into something that looks pretty good. So the neighbors are very happy about it. Yep. I think overall it works pretty well. Mm-hmm.
0: Well yeah, I mean, I can I can totally see that. And you know, this cash flow obviously comes from you're paying out even if it was 8% and 8% like but you're paying a private lender 8% on 80 grand and then you're taking 8% on 230 grand and you're just keeping that difference right there. Sure. Makes total yeah. sense. And then of course, you then go and sell it to a note buyer years later because that private lender says, "You know what? I want my money back." And you're like, great, well, I'll just sell off the note and then I'll take another nice chunk of change right there.
1: Yeah, and actually, a lot of the times, I offer that opportunity first to my private lenders. Hey, would you like to to convert your 80 grand into you know, some, something else cash flowing with this promissory note? That way, it's, it's almost like they've got a right-of-first refusal mm-hmm. in buying a discounted promissory note before you start shopping it to the rest of the network.
0: Yeah. Why do you think more people aren't doing
1: this? There's a level of complexity to it. Uh, It's very straightforward to, you know, understand wholesaling a house. But, you know, with this model, there's more complexity. There's more moving parts. It takes more work and more effort and more energy. But at the same time, the output is way, you know, considerably bigger. The other thing is when you start getting into, you know, the promissory note space and calculating yields and discounts and all that other stuff, you've got to learn how to use the financial calculator which most people refuse to do.
0: Yes. Um, Finances is one of those things that a lot of real estate investors are like, you know what, I'll just sell more and then we won't have a finance problem.
1: There was an aha moment for me in early 2017. I was listening to, it was a a series on CDs by Lonnie Scruggs. And uh, he said the words, if you never take the time to learn how money works, you'll always work for someone who does. Yeah, it makes sense. And that is when I was like, all right, let's figure out how money works. And flipping houses, I felt like all I was doing was working for money. Wholesaling houses, you get paid, you put all that effort into it and you get paid one time. Yeah, And then, you, and, and then you're taxed on that. So I slowed down. I was like, how can I make money work for me? Is there an aspect of this where I'm still working for money? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But we we put together uh, almost half a million dollars in no equity in three deals in the month of April. Crazy. Well, I think of what you're doing is like, you're like,
0: you know, most people take the wet towel and they just squeeze it. There you go. You're like pressing this thing and like putting it into a vice and like squeezing every last, you know, bit of value out of it. And because of that, you need less deals. You know, I was just sort of like, like the lifetime value of a of a deal for you is worth so much more than someone who's just buying an off-market property and flipping it to a uh you know an investor that wants to flip it, right? Or even someone that buys that off-market vi- uh deal, they they pay themselves right there. A lot of times they're just assigning it to themselves, take a nice little 5-10 20k assignment, then flip the house, make another 40-50k, and they're like, "Yeah, well we made 70." It's like Yeah, but you did that in one year. Imagine what you could do on 20 or 30 years if you just figured out how to like continue squeezing that towel out. Um, And I think it all just comes back to most of us would rather just go get the next deal. Like We're just so wired towards how do we get more deals. But that's, I think, in my opinion, that's the wrong thing to be optimizing for. What you should be optimizing for is like, what's the bottom line here? Actually, how do I do... More money with less effort and less risk. It's like we'll maximize the value of every deal you do, and problem solved.
1: Yeah, it's true. What do you think is the reason why folks are uh, you know so hungry to to just go do more volume and flip the next deal rather than maximizing opportunities?
0: Because we compare ourselves by how many deals did you do in a month? Because that, for some reason, is the baseline metric. As if that makes any difference. How, you know, you do five deals a month in upstate South Carolina. I do five deals a month in Denver. What's the difference? Well, probably a 5X, <laughs> right? But a for zero. whatever reason, it's the common denominator is number of deals you've done. And yeah. it just, it it's it, it, I think it hits our dopamine center more often. We would rather, you know, that dopamine that fires when you get a deal signed, ooh, there's nothing better in the whole world. Right, And all of us are just like, how do I be- get back out there and get some more of this dopamine? Yeah. Um, I think that's what it is. What's
1: your thought? It's, it's that. Um, I've always compared it to that whole uh, little kids in the room with the one marshmallow on the plate. And if they, if they can hold off on eating it for five minutes, they'll get a second marshmallow. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and most, I don't know what the stat is, but I'm sure it's most of these kids fail in those five minutes. You know, they can't hold off so mm. yeah there's probably a you know a, the, the dopamine hit um, probably some financial anxiety uh, yeah. causing some of that you know having to you know stay, staying on the merry-go-round is safer than, uh, than getting off and watching it spin around probably you know depends on each individual's uh, position in life what season in life um, I mean look I would say two, two years ago if you were able to you know consistently flip a couple of deals a month, whether it's wholesale or, or flipping houses, you were doing really well, you know? And then, then the music stops. Yeah. Six, eight, nine months ago.
0: I mean, I think a lot to your point, like, the, and I appreciate that you brought up the whole, like, none of this is binary. Like it's not all or nothing. It's not one reason or another. It's all sorts of factors contributing. Um. And this actually may not be the right situation for a lot of people. Meaning, if you're a if you're a sales and marketing person, like that's what you do, that's what you are good at. Maybe don't try to flip a house and sell, you know dispo it on a seller finance note and then sell that. It's like that's. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with creating the frequency that we resonate with. Um, if your frequency is like, I just want to market and sell deals and you do that really, really well, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just like saying, let's, you know, Jay is pointing out, there's a lot of juice still left in that. If you know how to squeeze it right. And you can create generational wealth by making money four times throughout the process. It's just something to consider. Again, it's not right or wrong. It's just, uh, it's just another option to to think through.
1: Yeah, Absolutely
0: well jay we usually finish this show by uh having our guests leave us with their greatest lesson they've learned in business we've covered a lot of stuff on this show but you know when you think of that and you think of your you know decade or so doing this what's your greatest lesson you've learned
1: you know uh there has been some ups and downs and some bumps along the way um but you know to be in this business long term, you're going to have to be able to pivot, right? So the greatest lesson here is to have a few clubs in the golf, right? You know, you you, if if everything's a, if you've only got a driver, then you're not going to putt very well. And if the market shifts like it did, you're going to be hung out to dry without having two or three strategies. Yeah, of what you're able to do in this business. Create
0: something here. where you've got a lot of optionality,
1: right? Yeah, options, right? You know, and it, that that comes down to if if you buy things right, you've got options. If you have multiple sources of financing, then you've got options. Um, but it comes down to when when the goings or when the getting's good, like it was, and you could just wholesale whatever, or you could just flip whatever and sell it retail. Nobody was thinking about alternative finance options or alternative exit strategies, right? And the music stops and. If if all you're doing is holding one, you know, if you've only got one strategy, you're screwed. Like, yeah, the last couple of months hurt a lot of people. Um, lucky for me, you know, I took some lumps along the way and had to learn some different methods to survive and thrive in this business and was able to, to make adjustments. So I would say you know, the greatest lesson here is you know, when things are easy, you know, take a look at what assumptions you're making. Think about what assumption you know could be wrong, and what you could do to uh, to overcome that. Mm-hmm.
0: That's great advice. Um, so, if you're building a business where you've got one op- one option, you might have a fragile business if the if the winds shift, right? So, um, Jay, I'm sure there's going to be people that are listening to this uh, that are saying, "Well, that sounds really interesting. I've got off market deal flow. We're flipping houses." But I'd like to learn more about how to sell this to the 65% of Americans that can't qualify for a mortgage, do it off market, avoid agent fees and avoid all this stuff and sell it for a premium to someone who is so grateful to buy a house because they otherwise wouldn't be able to qualify for it. So if they wanted to learn more about that, they wanted to get in touch with you, learn more about what you're up to, how could they go about doing that?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of different ways to reach out to me. I'm more than happy to talk business, talk shop, walk anybody through this entire process, uh, just as I love. It. It's been amazing to me, um, so I'm happy to share. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, it's just my name, Jay Chikansky. Uh, also got a website with a contact form, app mountaincapital.com, A-P-P-M-T-N-Capital.com. Uh, you can reach out to me there. That's the best way to do it. Cool.
0: We'll have all that stuff in the show notes as always. Um, and I encourage you to reach out to Jay because he is one of the authorities that on this subject, um, he's been doing it for a very long time, done hundreds of these transactions. Uh, if he doesn't know it, it's probably not doable, right? So reach out to Jay, connect with him. Um, and Jay, man, it was just such a pleasure to have you share this. I just, I really, um, the way that you think about optionality and business and pivoting and being able to structure this notes, the finance side of things, just cool to hear you sort of uh, give your expertise on these areas because I think a lot of people look at that and they say, "Man, if I just understood the finance side, uh, this would all go much easier." So, again, thanks for sharing all this. Everybody else, we encourage you reach out to Jay; he's he's an expert on this. Yeah, happy to talk to you. And for everybody else. We encourage you to use the investor frame. So knowing what you know now and the conversations that Jay and I just had about strategies and getting closer to what matters and aligning with your frequency, all this information, um, knowing what you know now, what changes do you need to make in your life or your business so you can get closer to the things that matter most to you? Again, thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you, Jay, for being here with me today. And we will see you guys on the next episode.